This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Okay, welcome everyone. Welcome all our Torah Anytime viewers. So tonight, tonight we are learning Li'iloi Nishmat. Avram ben Chaim Yehuda, Yechezkel ben Abraham, and Tzila bat Rabbi David, as well as for Refuah Shlemato Shira bat Sarah. Okay, so... One announcement, um, and that is um, uh, from uh, Rabbi Rahimi on Back to Sinai, backtosinai.com. This is an organization that if uh, they set up people to learn Torah, meaning like Torah partners. So if you, whichever level that you are on, you're able to go and, and get set up. Uh, Baruch Hashem, it's blowing up. So definitely be part of this uh, revolution. Go check it out. Check the website. Um, uh, you'll be, you should be able to sign up everything over there. If not, you can always email me and I will send you uh, the link to uh, to sign uh, to sign up. Definitely, definitely recommend it to, to go and get this signed up. Okay. Alright, let us let us move on. So tonight we are continuing on the Perke Avos. Uh, and by the way, just look at how much how amazing it, you know Perke Avos well how amazing Torah is, right? So we're we're I think we're the sixth class in Perkei Avos, and we're still in the first Mishnah. And I skipped over many things that I didn't end up speaking about, just to show you, and each class is about an hour, so you're talking about six hours in one Mishnah, and that's just like barely scratching the surface. Meaning that there are many times in our life that we have opportunities for growth. We tend not to see it just like we go and we open up a Pirkeavos, we open up a Mishnah, we open up a Sefer, we open up a book, whatever it is, and we uh, um, start learning. And we just like skim through it, but... Did you ever imagine that you would be able to go and learn on one Mishnah over six hours of like, of like information that's in it? So there's so many stuff that is just right there, right in front of us that we could tap into, but we don't. We tend to just like, like let it skim over us. Just like there is so much bacteria, there's so much, you know, stuff just like floating in the ear that if we would be able to see the stuff that is, is just, just out there, we wouldn't be able to survive. There is so much information out there. There's so much stuff out there. But at least when it comes to learning, when it comes to to uh, growing, when it comes to be able to uh, uh, improve ourselves, we should look at any every, and every angle that we have to be able to tap into it. And you never know where that that focus might be. When we spoke about the divinity series, so that was a, a series about uh, proving Hakadosh Baruch proving God, proving the Torah, uh, um, uh, answering questions. What was the reason that I went through 32 classes on it? The basic reason for it really was is that everybody speaks to a different angle of a different proof. And the same thing as the Torah. You speak to something different. It could be of what you're going through in that in, in your personal life, right? So if you have an issue in your personal life with, let's say, relationships, whether it's with friends, whether it's with a spouse, whether it's with a child, whatever it is, then if you hear a class in it, you sort of like, oh, pipe up and be like, hmm, let me, let me listen to this. Maybe I could I gain something from it. So everything that we're going through in our life, we tend to like focus it on a, on, on a kind of a different angle than we would if it wouldn't be bothering us or if it wouldn't be something that's on our, on, on our mindset. So the, the beauty of this is, is that you could listen to a Torah class in one mindset 
and you could get something out of it. And then you can listen to it from a completely different mindset and you can completely get a completely different, uh, uh, you know, mind, uh, you know, uh, uh, outcome, uh, you know, from it. Meaning that you could listen to the same thing again and again and learn something every time a little bit different. So, Going on with the first Mishnah. So the first Mishnah speaks about the Anchek Nesagdala and the three things that they said. And we spoke about really one of them. We really spoke about be deliberate in judgment, be slow to judge. The next two things is really what I want to try to wrap it up tonight. And by the way, we could continue this, but I'm trying to wrap up the first Mishnah tonight. Which we're going to skip in the least in the beginning, which means is to to create to make many many students, and uh, literally this, the translation is to stand up many students, which we'll hopefully be able to explain today. But the focus where I want to start the Esusiago Torah to make a fence for the Torah. So when we're dealing with fences, uh, we're dealing with protective, uh, you know, fences. There are three aspects that I would like to speak about tonight. Bezat Hashem with Hashem self. Number one is Torah, biblical, biblical fences. Number two is rabbinic fences. And number three is personal fences. Now, w- when we say fence, what we really mean is this protective uh, preventative measure to prevent you from, let's say, falling in something or hurting, you know, like, whatever. The list goes on and on, and we'll soon see why. The idea behind going first to the biblical, then to rabbinical, and then to the personal is that if we learn about the fences that the Torah made, and we learn about the fences that the rabbis made, then when we come to our fences, we'll have a lot more clarity on how to make it. And really the bulk of the focus is going to be the biblical fences and the rabbinic fences because I'm not going to be, I'm not going to need to focus on the personal fences because you'll be able to, uh, hopefully, Bizarre Hashem will be able to create a sort of a understanding that you'll be able to plug in your own personal fence. So first of all, we have to explain what is a fence. What, what, what is this, uh, what is this terminology? So if, Let's say you come to a sign that says uh, landmines, and there's a fence on it. I, and I actually remember this. When I was in Israel, learning in yeshiva, somewhat like 20 years ago, I was, uh, we, we went on a trip. I don't remember if it was with my family or it was with the yeshiva. And it was, there was a sign there that says landmines. And I, like, I didn't even know that this existed. I didn't understand. I'm like, why can't you just like, just drive some sort of things across this before robots, right? Drive some things across it, um, you know, and, and just like get rid of it. But whatever it was, the sign still existed over there. And there was barbed wire. I believe it was electrical fence. Also, landmines stay far behind. So, uh, you know, when, you go and you see this fence, you're, you don't really ask questions. You're like, okay, no need to say anything else. I'm staying away from that. And, you know, just give it another example. So when I was in yeshiva, the, um, the, the way that my yeshiva worked, if you go, you go into the building and you walk up, the, to the third floor, that was where the base medrash was. And there was also dorms in the back of the building, in the back of the, like behind the base medrash. So, the interesting part was, is if you go up three floors, you'll see that the, the windows over there, there's bars on the windows. Now, my dorm was 
about two floors down, there was no bars on the window. And you think about it, like, why would you put bars three flights up? It, you know, it's like not nothing, you know, like, okay, it's high, but it's like not something, you know, like, like crazy. And the reason for that was, is that a lot of Jerusalem, a lot of Yerushalayim is, is on hills. So even though you're walking into the building and you're walking three flights up, really, when you look out the window, that's six or seven flights down. So that is a significant thing because it's it's on a steep hill. So my dorm was let's say three. It was you, when you walk into the building, you have to walk like three flights down, but it still had two flights to you know from from the ground. So when you look at it, you can see that there is a fence over there, and you can see you can you, initially you could ask like why are you putting a fence on the second floor on the third floor? You know, generally something high. Okay, I understand it. It wasn't it, my yeshiva wasn't that type of yeshiva. You need to put a fence in every bar Hashem. You didn't need, need to put a you know a gate in every in every window. So. The, you know, people can complain. It ruins a view, whatever, you know, uh, whatever people have issues, you know, with fences. But in essence, once you look down, you see like, oh, wait a minute. This is really, really, really high up. Let me, you know, make sure I prevent it. And then when you see the fence, you're like, okay, this is, this is, you know, good that they put, they, they put a fence. Now, when you look at people that complain, of you know uh, offenses, uh, they complain for these things. Where would these complaints really be focused on? So, if you put a fence in a place of danger, no one will ever say anything, right? If you're if uh, you know driving in Israel, I don't know why my mind's bringing back to Israel. Driving in Israel, there are certain roads that are first of all very narrow, and they have like a cliff right near it. So, if you see like one of those little fences, those little metal fences over there, you're not going to be like you know you know like why you're putting a fence over here. It's it's logical. No one's going to complain about it. People are going to be like, that's amazing. That's great. It should be there. Uh, if you look at a fence where there are, uh, you know, uh, uh, landmines, you're not going to be like, come on, I wanted to go over there. You had to put this fence over there. No one in their right mind will be like, I can't believe that there's a fence over here. I really wanted to track through there. Now I have to walk all around. If there's a landmine, you'll walk an extra mile to 10 to 100 miles. You'll never go there because you'll never want to touch it. So no one will ever complain if there's a fence where there is a landmine. What about a pothole? This is not dangerous. This is a minor inconvenience, meaning that if you go and you're driving your car and there's a puddle and someone puts a fence around it, you're not going to be like, oh my God, I have to go around. You're going to be like, no, you know, like a big deal. I'll go around it. Even if it's a detour, even if it's a five minute detour, you're not going to mind it so much because, you know, it's protecting you for something. So where do people actually have problems when there are fences that are, that are placed up? And soon you'll see why we're giving this type of introduction. Where people have a problem is where they don't realize the benefit of the fence. So I'll give you an example. Let's say there is a car that comes out or a motorcycle. Pick your fancy. And this car or motorcycle, they uh, it goes – it's like extremely powerful motor, like a very, very powerful motor. And the – company that produces this said you know this is too powerful for the consumer we they put a little uh, like a um like a block on the motor that it could only go up to a certain speed and after that 
it doesn't allow the the engine to go any higher. Now, let's say you bought, you purchased this supercar, you purchased this super motorcycle, and you decide you're like, you know, I, I mean, I have all this horsepower and nowhere to, you know, like I gotta be able to utilize this. So you hire a technician that's able to bypass this, uh, you know, this uh, this block. You think like, uh, you know, I could be in control of myself. You don't have to tell me how fast I go. I can tell myself how fast I go, and you bypass it. Now, I don't know if anybody has ever, you know, had this before, but I remember growing up, I was driving my bike, driving, I was riding my bike, and I was a little kid, I still remember this, I don't know, I don't know why, it's so vivid, I had a little, you know, tiny little BMX bike, and I was riding it so fast that my, my handlebar started shaking. And as it started shaking in my mind, I, I like I, rem- I remember where it happened. I remember exact like I remember all the de- it's crazy. And I remember it started shaking in my mind. I'm like, oh no, like this is not good. And then there was, you know, on my block, there was, uh, you know, growing up in Brooklyn, if you have a tree that's growing on the side, right? So there's, uh, the city puts in trees every so often, right? Just to, besides the six blades of grass that you have in your front yard, you have also, let's say, you know, a tree. But sometimes what the tree is, as it grows, it's sort of, it's so powerful, the growth of the tree, that it pushes the cement up and there's cracks in the cement. And not only there's cracks, sometimes there's, there's big bumps. And I was riding my bike very fast. I think I wanted to say, I don't know, whatever it was. <laughs> Explain the mind of a little kid. And it started shaking. And I realized, that, oh, no, this is not good. And then I saw that bump. I saw that ledge. And I get to it. As the second that I that that I hit to it, that, you know, I knew it was over. I, I remember, like, I was airborne. You know, I was I was very, very bruised up. Now, the next time that I got on the bike... I wasn't driving so, I wasn't riding it so fast anymore because I knew, I remember the, the pain that it caused me beforehand. Now imagine going back to our story over here where this guy has a supercar, super bike, super motorcycle, and he takes off all the, the, you know, the, the blocks that they put onto it. All the, you know, he bypassed everything. And he's driving this motorcycle. He's driving this car. And all of a sudden it gets to a certain speed and it starts shaking. And then all of a sudden there comes a point in people's lives where sometimes you just realize and be like, uh-oh. You know, like, this is not going to end well. And you're, you're driving it fast and then, God forbid, you go into an accident. What's going to happen after this guy recuperates from the accident? He's going to go back to the technician. He's going to be like, you know, take my bypass off. Put it back the way that it was. There's a reason why it was before. And he puts back the block that the company originally put because he realizes the importance of it. So going back to our discussion, if you have a fence, if you have a protective barrier, if you have something that you're preventing yourself from falling into, but if you don't realize the benefit of it, if you don't realize the benefit of the fence, if you don't realize the benefit of this protective barrier, then you're not going to utilize it. When are you going to utilize it? Once you fall, once you fall apart and, and then you come to the conclusion and be like, you know what, maybe, maybe, just maybe there's something wrong with my, uh, you know, with, with my understanding and let me put this fence back. So a big reason why we either do not put fences on our personal life or we don't live up to the fences that already exist. And again, if you don't follow me with fences, soon you'll understand. It, the reason that we don't, we don't put fences is that we don't see it as a big deal. But like, what's the big deal? What's the big deal if I mess up this mitzvah? What's the big deal if I do this Avera? 
Right? If somebody goes and somebody doesn't see, let's say, the benefit or the power or the importance of Kiva Dava Aim, so be like, okay, so what's the big deal if I don't answer my parents' call? What's the big deal if I don't speak so respectfully? What's the big deal? If you don't see the importance, you're not going to go and work hard on it. The more important something is to you, the more that you're going to focus on it. So why do so many people not put fences? They think, what's the big deal? It's not such a big sin. It's not. So, so what if I missed a minion? So what if I didn't dress modestly? So what if you don't see it as a big deal? Then guess what? You're not going to put the fences, and you're probably or possibly going to fall. If you look at, let's say, somebody who um, has to wake up for an important flight. And they have to wake up at 4 a.m. Now, this is a person that can never wake up on time, right? 8 o'clock, forget about it. Like, you know, 7 o'clock, there's no chance. 9 o'clock, if you're lucky. 10 o'clock, that's a sweet zone. But let's say they have a flight. They have an important flight. They paid a lot of money to it. They're going on a vacation, whatever it is that they're going, a business meeting. And they have to wake up at 4 a.m. What are they going to do? They're going to put one alarm clock on their phone. Then they're going to buy another alarm clock to put in. Then they're going to put the vibration alarm clock that they would be able to put on their bed. So they will go from one to another to go and to make sure that they are able to go and have, make sure that they wake up on time. Now, why is it that they're able to make sure that they wake up 4 a.m. for this flight, but when it comes to minion, when it comes to davening, or when it comes to waking up for work, or they're not able to wake up? What is the difference that here you're able to wake up and here you're not able to wake up? So the common answer would be, well, here is once in a while. You know, like if someone flies every single day or very often, then, okay, maybe we'll be all right. This is once in a blue moon, so then that's why they're able to do it. But really... The, the underlining reason is this is important to you and this is not as important to you. If this would be as important to you, you would make sure that you would also be up at that point in time. So the way that we kind of live our life, it would be dependent on what we see as important and what we see as not important. If somebody goes and decides that A is important, then they would put protective fences, they would put measures that they should be able to go and accomplish A. If they think A is not so important, so sometimes they'll do it, sometimes they won't do it. Maybe they'll do it more often, maybe they won't do it more often, depending on the day, depending on the day. It all depends on what you feel the worth is. So, when we look and we decide on what to put our... Um, our fences on and what to put our worth on, this is something that we can kind of relate would be directly in de- directly dependent on how important that thing is for us. So with that understanding, let's look at some of the fences that the Torah brings down. Now, people don't really know this or realize this, that people think that when there is fences, that, you know, when we say that there's fences, that means that if the, if you're not supposed to go 50 feet to point A, a fence would be, you put it at 100 feet, just to be extra careful, right? So if you have 50 feet landmines and your kid is playing near that area, you tell that kid 100 feet, well, you'll probably tell the kid, play somewhere else. But let's say you have nowhere else, you'll tell that kid 100 feet, that's where you have to, other than, after that, it's landmines. Oh, wait a minute, but no, it's 50 feet. No, you're putting an extra protective fence, uh, you know, uh, on top of that because you're so nervous about it. It's so important to you that you, you step on a landmine, that's death. 
So you have to be super, super careful. So because of that, you tell the kid an extra 50 feet. So the fence is that extra, extra 50 feet. The Torah has fences on the command, on, on, on certain commandments. Now let's go through, uh, you know, a, a few of them to understand maybe a little bit of a background of why the fences were put into place. So, uh, the Pasuk in Vayikra. In chapter 18, verse 19, speaking about Nida, We're talking about an Isha in the time of her Nida. You're not allowed to come close to uncover the, 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 the Erva. Now the question of the Ervasa, why is it that the Torah says, Don't come close. If there is a prohibition, the prohibition will be, do not do this. Here, the Torah does not say the prohibition. The Torah says, sort of like a dis, you have to dis, don't even come close to the prohibition. Stay a little bit further. The Torah itself was putting a fence or, around that prohibition. Meaning that saying, don't go close to it. You might think, okay, I can't do X, but maybe I could do Y, maybe I could do Z, maybe I could do A, maybe I could do B. The Torah says, no, 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 no. Stay away. Stop. We, when we come to rationalizing certain things, and if you'll see, there is a theme, right? There's certain things that the Torah that that are very big temptations. The Torah says you gotta you gotta put yourself in a distance because if you don't put yourself in a distance, you're gonna end up you're gonna end up falling in it. So the Torah says over here, Leisikrav legalis ervasa. Don't even come close to it. Meaning, it's not just the sin. It's not just the main issue, but it's also the distance you have to come, you have to stay far away from it. The Rambam says that regarding bearing a, uh, a grudge, what was the Torah's prohibition on bearing a grudge? Again, of course, we know that you're not allowed to bear a grudge. Now, what was the reason for not bearing a grudge? That the Rambam says is a precautionary measure that one does not take revengeful action. Meaning that do not bear a grudge in a, in a sense like a fence that you don't take revenge on a person. Now, of course, there's a lot to speak about a grudge because really, in essence, if you're angry at somebody else, if you're holding a grudge at somebody else, that affects you a lot more than affects anybody else. In fact, it affects you 99%. Maybe it affects the other person 1%. If, you know, whatever. We'll, we'll not get into that 1%. But really, if you have an anger towards somebody else, that affects you. It ruins your date. You see that person. You think about that person. You read about that person. It affects you. It doesn't affect the other person. So bearing a grudge is non-productive, non-useful in any means, way, or form. But the Torah, when the Torah says you're not allowed to, you're not allowed to bear a grudge, the Rambam explains that that's a precautionary measure that you're not going to actually do something based off that emotion, based off that feeling. The Kassas of Mishnah goes on a different example. Cooking a milk and meat together. What was the reason that you're not allowed to cook meat and milk together? It's a precautionary measure. It's a fence not to be, not to go and eat what you cook. The Rashbam in, in the Gemara and Bava Basra. The prohibition of keeping an imprecise weight. So the way that it used to work in the olden days is that if, uh, let's say you would want to buy whatever, anything from, from food to gold, it would be based on weights. So you have, let's say, a one pound weight, you could, depending on the ounces, pounds, whatever. Let's say you have a pound, one pound weight. So you have, or one kilo weight, depending, probably everything back then was in kilos, right? You have a one kilo weight. 
and then you put on the scale one kilo, and then you could see how much of the food or whatever it is that you're weighing over there. But some people that were not so scrupulous, or maybe they were a little bit on the sketchy side, they went and they took a one kilo weight or one pound weight, and instead of writing, they they, they wrote one pound on it or one kilo on it, but it was really three quarters of that, 75% of that. So the Torah has a prohibition that that type of weight, if you have a weight that's really 0.75 of a pound, and the mark in it says it's one pound, you're not allowed to keep that in your house. Why you're not allowed to keep it in your house, says the Rashbam, that's a precautionary. That's so that one will not come to accidentally or on purpose use it. So it's sort of a fence. Do not keep that near because you might end up coming to use it. Rabbi Nunisim says that one should not, the, the, the prohibition of not having chametz in one's possession is that one should not come to eat it. Now let's use that as an example. What, what's, what's, the, what's the deal of not having chametz in your house? You're allowed to have treif in your house. I wouldn't recommend it, but you're allowed to. You are not allowed to have chametz in your house on Pesach. Why not? So the punishment for chametz, eating chametz on Pesach is kares. It's getting cut off from God. Uh, we have a whole class on this. I'm not going to go into this. Uh, you know, now we have a class on the three types of kares. But the idea behind it is that it's so severe. It's so problematic to have it that you don't go and you don't even put it in your house. It's karis. Karis is a high level. It's like desecrating Shabbos. So you don't even, you know, you don't even have it in your possession on, on Pesach. There are certain things that the Torah we see over here put a fence. And by the way, this is a big chiddush for many people. People don't realize. People think, oh, fences, that is the rabbis that they put out. No, no, no. They have many, many instances where the Torah put fences on themselves. On the, on the, on the mitzvahs. One of the reasons is is that it because of the severity of the sin, or because of the importance of the sin, or because you don't realize that the sin, the Torah puts extra precautionary, uh, you know, measures to it. Let's advance to the next uh, level, and that is on rabbinical sins. The rabbinical, I'm sorry, rabbinical fences. Now, before we get into rabbinical fences, we have to ask. We have to answer a question. But before we answer the question, we have to ask the question. And the question is, how do the rabbis come and make Rabbinical fences. So rabbinical fences would be, the rabbis say, you can't do this, whatever this is, you know, fill in the blank. You can't do X. How could the rabbis say you can't do X? The Torah, very, very explicitly and very, very straightforward, says in two places, in Devarim, chapter 13, verse 1, it says, Everything that HaKadosh Baruch was saying, God is saying, everything that I commanded you to do, I, I say Tishmu, you have to guard it. To do, you're not allowed to add to anything that I said, and you're not allowed to take away. Which means is that you're not allowed to add any commandments. So how did the rabbis come and say, oh, this you're not allowed to do? Wait a minute. The Torah doesn't say that I'm not allowed to do that. So how did the rabbis come and, and, and say that I can't do that? Another uh, passage is in Devarim, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2. It says, You're not allowed to add to whatever I, I commanded you, and you're not allowed to take away. Rashi over there gives examples. And the examples are that, the examples could go in Hamisha Parshias. You're not allowed to take your tefillin and put 
five parshas. It's supposed to be four. You're not allowed to add a, five, a fifth parshas. Um, you're not allowed to take your lul of an esrog and add a fifth min. You're supposed to have four minim, right? You're supposed to have four things in your lul of an, an esrog. You have the lul of the esrog, the hadasa, and the rabbis. Have four things. You're not allowed to decide and say, you know what? I'm adding a watermelon. I'm going to come into shul. A little of an estric, and I'm going to hold a watermelon for whatever reasons. Right? Yeah, I got to show my muscles. Like I got to be able to hold a watermelon. It's a ripe watermelon. I, you're not allowed to go. You're not allowed to add in it. So the question is that if you can't add to it, how can the rabbi say this is forbidden? How can the rabbis come and say you're not allowed to do this? If the Torah says that you're not allowed to, if the Torah says that you are allowed to do that, how could the rabbis come and add a protective fence? Because that's really the reason why the rabbis are adding additional uh, um, prohibitions is as a protective fence. But how could they do that if the Torah says that you're not allowed to? So the many, many, many explains this, and and the explanation is as follows. We'll use the example of cooking uh, meat and milk together. The Pasuk in Shemais, in Exodus, chapter 23, verse 19, says regarding, e- you know, eating eat milk and meat together, You're not allowed to cook a baby goat in its mother's milk. Now, the biblical prohibition from the Torah, that means that you're not allowed to cook milk and meat. That's what you're not allowed to cook. But what about fowl? What about chicken? And cheese. Turkey and cheese. Duck and cheese. Let's say you are able to make a cheeseburger that, well, you could, uh, a cheeseburger that's made from fowl, from chicken, turkey, ducks. Are you allowed to eat that? So, biblically, from the Torah, you're allowed to eat that. Rabbinically, you're not allowed to eat that. The rabbis came and says, fowl, you're also not allowed to eat. Now, let's try to explain how and why they were able to go and say, this you're not allowed to, if the Torah says you are allowed to. So, the Besdin goes and they did a simple study, a very, very careful study. And they saw that people intuitively associated chicken with meat. It looks the same. If you grind it, it looks very similar. So people, what ended up doing is they ended up eating, let's say, chicken and milk together. And technically it was allowed. But one person says, wait a minute, that looks like meat. So they're probably eating meat and milk. That's probably a lot. So they started eating meat and milk also. Uh, and it was actually a biblical prohibition. So the rabbis came and they said, you know what? People are falling on, on biblical prohibitions over here that you're not allowed to eat milk and meat together. So now we're going to add on that you can't eat milk and fowl together because it's very closely related and people will get confused and they will end up falling into this uh, prohibition. So the the rabbis way, way, way back made a prohibition that you're not allowed to eat chicken and milk, uh, you know, uh, together. And the reason was, it was to prevent these drastic errors. Because people, besides the error of just looking at it, people might say, wait a minute, if the meat and fowl, if meat and chicken is permitted, because it does not state explicitly in the Torah that meat and chicken is prohibited, is, is, so maybe undomesticated beasts or animals is also permitted because it does not state you know, explicitly. And really, it's not allowed. Another person might come and might say, wait a minute, the Torah says the meat of a goat is not allowed to be eaten with the milk of a goat. But what about meat of a goat with milk of a cow? Maybe that's allowed. And because it's a different species. 
And biblically, that's not allowed. But people might come to the confusion and say that it is allowed. Or somebody else might come and say, well, meat of a goat with goat milk of its mother is not allowed. But what about meat of a goat with goat's milk that's not its mother? Maybe it is permitted, right? Because, the, you know, the Pusik, the Pusik says, Don't cook a baby goat with its mother's milk. What about someone else, another mother's milk? And really, biblically speaking, you're not allowed to cook any meat with any milk. Fowl is a different thing, but meat, like like from an animal, from any uh, any uh, domesticated or undomesticated animal, you're not allowed to cook the meat, the meat and the milk together. So people will come to radical and drastic errors. So the rabbis came in and said, you know what? Let, we're banning it all. We're banning the chicken. We're banning the we're banning fowl. We're banning meat it's just to make it across the board because people are going to fall into this. And if people are going to fall into this, it's going to be very very problematic. So let's just ban all the meat and milk together. So the question is, how could the rabbis come and ban this if biblically it's allowed? And the answer is that the rabbis are allowed to come and say, this eating chicken and milk is allowed from the Torah, but us, the rabbis, we forbid it. Meaning that they didn't add to the Torah. They didn't say that this prohibition is a biblical prohibition. They didn't say from the Torah. God said from the Torah and the written. Even God said through the. We'll soon see how God said also through the rabbis. But God. But it doesn't say like through the Torah that you're not allowed to eat chicken and milk together. Together. Torah, the rabbis say you're allowed to do it. You really are. You're allowed to do it. But the rabbis, we added a protective fence. We added a prohibition that you're not allowed to do it for reasons X, Y, and Z. And, you know, for obvious reasons that we were able to, you know, to see. So that is not adding to the Torah. That is adding a protective fence and that is allowed. So where it becomes problematic, where it becomes not allowed is that if the rabbis came and say, you know what? This, we didn't add this. This is from the Torah. This is the Torah. This is, you know, this is from, from a Kaddish Baruch. This is a biblical commandment that you're not allowed to do it. That's adding to the Torah. That's adding that we're not allowed to do. But the rabbis are allowed to come and say, biblically, this is allowed. Rabbinically, we're not allowing it because X, Y, and Z. So, where does this come to the, you know, differentiate? You look at, let's say, rabbinic law. This is stated clearly. But you look at, for example, Christianity. Christianity, Christians come and they remove the Torah. They say the Torah is no longer applicable. All the laws, all the obligations, right? The Torah, according to the Christians, they're allowed to eat anything and everything, right? At least the Muslims, they come and say, okay, halal, there's certain, there's certain pig they don't eat. There's certain, there's certain, the hachsherim that they have to go according to. Christians, Anything goes, no problem. Oh, but wait a minute. The Torah, which they believe in, the Old Testament, as they call it, says that you're not allowed to. So they say, no, that's null and void at this point in time. So that is going and it's taking away from the Torah. Which again, I don't know how they could come to this conclusion and feel satisfied with it. Because in the, it's like in the instruction manual, in the Torah, in the Old Testament, it says, don't remove any of the commandments. And they come and they say, oh, we're removing the commandments. How do you answer that? Oh, you know, there was a second version that came up. Oh, but the first version said it's not going to move. If there's an all-knowing God and there's an all-powerful God and the God that knows the future, if there would come a time where God in the future would say, you know what? I am only keeping this Torah for a certain period of time 
afterwards we're going to go to the Christian thing. Then there would have been a caveat. There would have been something written in the Torah saying, by the way, this is going to happen until X, Y, and Z. Why wouldn't God, who knows the future, say that? The answer is because it's made up. They made it up. There's no source whatsoever. There's no reason whatsoever. The Torah says that the Torah will never be changed. The Christians come and they change it. They say, no, it's null and void. Even though the Torah says you can't remove any, not even one mitzvah. They remove, a, I would say all of it. <laughs> if not, And not only they remove it, they also add. What do they add? They add, they, they add, they add obligations. Now you have to believe in their Messiah. You have to, that's a commandment. Well, wait a minute. There's nowhere in the Torah that says you have to believe in, in, you know, in the Messiah. There's nowhere, otherwise you're not gonna get, there's, they added certain things, meaning that they completely, like, skimmed over very, very important aspects of the Torah. Meaning that if you have somebody that's trying to prove a point to you, and they're so obviously wrong, and when you prove to them, they're like, oh, no, 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 la, 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 it doesn't count. You know, and they just like completely skim it over. You begin to realize, okay, maybe this person has no idea what they're talking about. Like, like, you know, like nothing doing. So this is why the rabbis were allowed to add protective fences because they added fences. They didn't add, they didn't change anything to the Torah. The Torah has and will always be the same. Whatever the Christian says is wrong. Whatever the Muslim says is wrong. The Torah is non-changing. The rabbis added certain protective fences. This, from the Torah, allowed. Rabbinically, not allowed. And this, a, a, a source for this is in Vayikra, in Leviticus, chapter 18, verse 30. It says, God in the Torah says, guard, you should observe my commandments. You should observe my... Meaning you have to guard it. That you have to prevent, you have to make yourself these protective fences because that's how you're going to protect my commandments. You have to put a safeguard for my commandments. How do you safeguard something? You block it off, right? If you have something expensive, you don't leave it out in the open. You block it off. You put it in a safe. You put it in something that, that's, that's guarded. So if we have something that's so holy, so special, the Torah, we should be, we should make sure that we're putting a protective fence around it to making sure that it's staying holy, that it's staying pure, no matter what, which situation that we arise in. The idea that the rabbis needed to come and add protective fences is really because of something called Yeridas Hadairis. Yeridas Hadairis means there's a re- reduction of the spiritual standing. As the generations go further on in time, as we go further away from Kabbalah Satara, from, from getting the Torah in Har Sinai, on Mount Sinai, the spiritual standing goes lower and lower and lower and lower, unfortunately. And the, that, that is why the rabbis of, let's say, this generation, we don't argue with the rabbis of 500 years ago because they were so much greater than us. And if they said something, that stands. And that's why you have, you have certain things. You have like the Mishnah, and then you have the Gemara, and then you have the Ga'inim, you have the Rishayim, you have the Achorinim, you have different, and, and one group doesn't argue if a, if, it, unless there is a source for it, uh, but, but one group doesn't completely argue with the previous group because like they were much greater than us. 
So what happens is, is that because of the reduction of the spiritual standing, there are more and more fences that we need to put on that in the previous generation, it was never needed because of their high spiritual standing. Now, this is even in the time of King David. In King David, there was, he had to issue a prohibition against yichud, seclusion, with an unmarried woman. Originally, the, biblically, it's just with a married woman. But King David have, had to add unmarried women due to certain, you know, circumstances that, that arose. Rabbeinu Gershom, for example, a little bit over a thousand years ago, made a prohibition, it was a takana, on, uh, this is in the Ashkenazi community, on, uh, on polygamy. There used to be, you used to be allowed to marry more than one wife. Uh, you know, many people, you know, can't handle one wife. I don't know how they're gonna handle multiple wives, but according to the Torah, you're allowed to. But our benegation saw that there was, a, you know, there, there were issues that were being, you know, coming, that were coming up. So he said from now on, only one wife. And this is uh, this was more in the Ashkenazi community as opposed to the Sephardic community. Uh, another example of a rabbinic uh, prohibition is that having a hot bath on Shabbos at one time was allowed. Obviously, that the water was heated before Shabbos. But what happened was is that there were bath attendants and there were people that were taking hot baths on Shabbos on water that was heated before Shabbos, but these bath attendants, maybe they were not so knowledgeable, whatever the reasons were, they they started heating water on Shabbos. So the rabbi said, you know what, this is becoming problematic. They're desecrating Shabbos, so now we're going to have to make a, a rabbinic prohibition that we're not allowed to have hot baths on Shabbos, because even though if it was heated before, and you would be allowed to, but now we're saying, you know, even if it was heated before and you're not allowed to, why? Because maybe some of the bath attendants will go and start heating water on, uh, you know, on Shabbos. The, to understand this, uh, you know, the, the rabbis adding, I think it's important to discuss, there's three aspects of what the rabbis added. Uh, so there is something called a gzeira, there is something called a takana, and there is something called a minhag. These are the three categories of the rabbinic portion of halacha, just to give you a little bit of a overview on it. So a, a takana is a positive enactment, meaning this is something that will protect the principles of the religion and Torah. A, that's a positive enactment, and we'll give examples. A negative enactment, enactment, it is xeros. This is to prevent, this is more like offense. To prevent certain breaches of, uh, you know, halacha. So let's start with xera. Example of xera that the rabbis created and put in is that you're not allowed to eat poultry with dairy. Something that we spoke about, this is the rabbis created a protective fence, Xera, and saying, don't do this because it can come to X, Y, and Z. And that, and by the way, if somebody goes and eats chicken with meat, they're over on a, they're over on an isher. That's a prohibition and they're, you know, we don't want to speak about punishment. Well, maybe we should. Um, but they're going to get punished for that. If the rabbi said that you're not allowed to do something and you do it, you get punished for that. That's, that's, a, that's considered a sin. Uh, based off of, you know, again, there's verses that we spoke about and we, we spoke about this in the divinity series if you want to go back to it on, uh, rabbinical prohibitions. But the xera is that you're not allowed to eat, uh, you know, poultry with, with dairy. Another xera is that the, from the Torah, on Erev Pesach, you're not allowed to eat, you're not allowed to eat or possess chametz from midday. 
From midday and on, you're not allowed to do it. The rabbis added two hours because they saw that maybe on a cloudy day, people won't know exactly what midday is and people will make a mistake. And it's a chiyav of kares, very severe. So they, they took an additional two hours. It says two hours before midday, you're not allowed to go and you're not allowed to eat or possess, you know, uh, uh, chametz. And this concept of adding laws to an existing a body of law is not just new to Judaism. Every government, every society always has to add laws. Uh, you know, to, to just like, you know, in our days, Congress has to constantly add new laws, new regulations because it's the old laws are not always adequate. Uh, you know, maybe there is modern trends. Maybe there is things that you know that change. So just like there is change in society in governmental, you know, uh, um, regulations, so too there are changes to the spiritual regulations because the time changes, and we have to adapt with the time, and we have to add either the protective fence, we have to add guidance to 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 the new times. Another example would be that uh, you know, if in the olden days there was no speed limit. Right, well, you had horses and buggies, right? You, as fast as your horse goes, that's as fast as you can go. But now, with the new day and age of cars and transportation, uh, you know, you have to have a speed limit. Uh, growing up in Brooklyn, the speed limit was 30, 30 miles per hour. Now you drive in Brooklyn, the speed limit went down to 25 miles per hour. But wait a minute. Why did it go down from 30 to 25? And by the way, that 5 miles per hour makes a big difference. Why is it that, why did they do it? And the, one of the reasons is, is they wanted to eliminate traffic deaths. There was, it was a crazy, crazy study on average every two hours, not every day, not once in a while, on an average, every two hours, another New Yorker either got killed or severely injured, seriously injured on a two hourly basis. So they decided we got to do something about it and they reduced the speed limit to 25 miles per hour because of that. So what was not necessary previously all of a sudden became necessary due to the overpopulation and the speed limit. People are speed, whatever the reasons were, and that's why there's cameras. There's many, many reasons why they had to enact it. It's not only about making the city money; it's also about preventing injury and preventing, uh, you know, preventing deaths. So the zeros were things that were enacted by the by the rabbis. To prevent certain, uh, um, you know, breaches in the in the Torah, a takana, on the other hand, is something that would enhance communal life. An example of a takana is to light candles on Hanukkah. This is a holiday. This is a rabbinic holiday that we add. Can, we light candles on Hanukkah. This is not from the Torah. This is a rabbinic holiday, and this is this is a uh, this is a takana. Another takana is something that we discussed is the prohibition, especially for for Ashkenazi Jews, of polygamy uh, from Rabbeinu Gershom. This is a uh, takana as well. That's something to enhance communal life. So zera is more in the negative. A takana is more in the positive. And finally, a minhag, a custom, a translation of a minhag is a custom, is something that. Uh, I'll give you an example. There uh, used to be a. Um, n- now it's a custom, but it used to be a zera where outside Israel, the there would be certain holidays would have a second day to it. The reason is that the exact date of the holiday might be unknown 
by the time, meaning that the way that the holidays used to, uh, you know, be determined is that you would have witnesses that would look for the new moon. And once they have the new moon, then they would go to bed and they would testify and there would be a whole thing. And that's when they enact, okay, this is when the month begins. And once we know when the month begins, now we know when the holiday begins. It's not like, the, you know, Shabbos. Shabbos is every seven days. The holiday depends on when Bezdin decides of when the, when the, when the month begins. So, and this is only in Israel. So what happens if someone living outside of Israel? So in Israel, they can say, okay, you know what? The new month begins today. But by the time, it wasn't, there was no internet. There was no phone calls over there. By the time the information reached outside of Israel, it could be, you know, an, another date. So the, there was a gzera. There was a rabbinical enactment that said in outside Israel, you would have to keep the holiday two days because you wouldn't be certain which day would be the holiday. Because you wouldn't be certain which day would be Rosh Chodesh, either this day or the, or the next day. So... Once the mathematical calendar, you know, came into being and we knew exactly when the holidays were happening, even outside of Israel, we didn't need to look at the new moon, there was no need for the testimony because we had the mathematical calendar, the rabbis kept the two-day holiday outside of Israel not because of Xera anymore, now it was because of a minhag. It was a custom because of it. Now again, we spoke about this in the Divinity series, I'm not going to go into it in, in depth, there's you know, reasons that we spoke about for why there needs to be two days of a holiday on uh, you know outside of Israel nowadays, even though we know exactly when it happens. But now that is a, um, you know, that, that is a custom, that is a minhag. And in fact, the Ramah, when speaking about Menhagim, the Ramah, Ramosha Israelish, uh, this was, uh, uh, was very, very strict on Menhagim. And this came about from when he was, uh, a, a young rabbi in, in his, in the Krakow community. And what happened was, is that there was, uh, there was a minig over there, there was a custom over there, that the caretaker of the mikvah, the next day after the woman went to the mikvah, would go over to the man and would mish, wish the man a mazel tov, right? Because hopefully, you know, whatever, uh, you know, it, it would produce a, a, a mazel tov. And when the, when the Ramah came and became the rabbi, he was like, this is very inappropriate. Why are we doing this? And he says, he goes over to the caretaker, we're stopping this, this minag, we're stopping this custom immediately. And, you know, the caretaker is a fine, you know, whatever the rabbi says. And a few days go by, and the there was a, a person that uh, the community that went over to the caretaker and says, "I don't understand." Says, "How come you didn't give me a mazel tov?" So the caretaker says, "Well, two reasons. Number one, the rabbi, the Ramah, said that we don't do this anymore. But number two, why would I give you a mazel tov? Your wife never came to the mikvah." And when this came back to the Ramah, the Ramah now realized the reason for the minig, meaning that the minig was that this that. This sort of gave like a double check of like that the woman went to, you know, went to the mikvah. This woman never went to the mikvah, but she went and told her husband that she went to the mikvah. Now the Ramah sees, he says, he sees the importance of this minhag and he put this minhag back into place. And then from then on, he was very, very meticulous on the minhagim. And no matter how minor or how unwarranted or maybe how we don't understand it, it doesn't make any sense. He said any minhag that the, the, the Jewish people kept, we have to keep and we have to continue with it. So that is the rabbinical fences. Let us speak about the personal fences. With that information, even though the hour is late, um, let's speak about the what it means to have personal fences. So we spoke about biblical fences. We spoke about rabbinical fences. And taking that information, now we can plug it into personal fences that we make. Throughout the centuries, 
there was an increased number of fences and chumras and prohibitions that had been accepted on Judy, you know, in the Jewish uh, practice. And, you know, the reason is not because we're doing so well that we're taking more on, but because, unfortunately, the, 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 where, where, where there's ongoing deterioration in our nation's spiritual level, and there was a need to add on these, these, uh, spiritual fences. Similar to the idea that you look at, let's say, for example, baby formula. The invention of baby formula was a necessary thing, but it wasn't a positive thing, because a mother's milk is much better than baby formula. But the problem is, women became busy. A majority of women. Okay, some, you know, I'm not talking about the rare cases. But the majority of women came busy and said, you know what? I can't, you know, they can't feed the baby. So we have to make formula. So it came out, it wasn't a positive, it's helping us now, but it wasn't a positive thing because the best thing would be for the baby to get milk from its mother. But as a second best, now that we have, we have this, uh, this, uh, you know, the formula. The, the rabbinical offenses, all these decrees, they're not, you know, it's not, it's beneficial for us and it's important for us, but it's not something like in a positive sense, like, oh, now we have more to, you know, to deal with. And it's because of our spiritual ongoing deterioration that we needed it. It was a necessity. And if we continue with that theme, we understand that the test that we have today is a test that we never had before. The technological advances, advance, uh, advancements, the these are things that our ancestors never had to deal with. A phone? Like, for what, what's a phone? You know, you're talking about 150 years ago. What, what would be a phone? Like, what would even, like, and, and take it a step further. Now it's a smartphone. Now it's a video chat. Now, you know, like, you can't even begin. And now you have internet on your phone. Now you have, you have the whole world on your fingertips. You have the, not only that, you have it in a split second. First of all, there was 3G. Then there was 4G. Now you have 5G. You have so fast. You're able to, you're able to download things of such magnitude, I guess, like volume or, or like, I don't know what the right word is, gigabytes of information instantly on your phone, wherever you are on planet Earth, almost, if you have service, right? With instant, This is something that our ancestors never had to deal with. Recent AI, artificial intelligence. You know, forget about our ancestors had, never had to deal with this. You never had to deal with this five years ago, two years ago. You never had to deal with this. We don't even know the test that's going to come out because of that. Robotics, we don't even begin to understand the, 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 not, not only the complications about the outcomes of what will come from these technological advances. We're going to have to create some sort of, there's going to be something that's needed, going to be, needed to be created for it. You know, in our day and age, we have more free time than anybody in history ever had. We have lights, you know, like in the olden days, night, when the sun goes down, the day is over. All right, if you're wealthy, you had some candles, you had some, you know, you're able to put something, but the day was practically over. We we have access today to so many things that we've never had before. So that produces more problems, more benefits, but more problems also. And we have to add these protective fences to make sure that we adapt with you know the times in the spiritual sense. Now each person knows 
their own problems. Each person knows what they're dealing with. Each person knows what they're going through. And each person has to adapt their own fences. Each person has to decide, you know what? I need to filter. You know what? I need to, you, you know where your issues are and you have to add in your own fences based on your issues. We see how the Torah added, added fences. They added fences on things that were very important, very, very problematic. We see how the rabbis added fences because of things that were falling apart. People were, were, were falling into biblical sins. So they had to start adding fences. If we take that information and we plug it into our own life, we have to start thinking, okay, where do we need to add our fences? Where do we need to go and plug in and say, you know what? This is where I need to fix myself or this is where I need to fix myself. This is where I have an issue. If you ever see somebody who's, let's say, a drug addict and you see how they live, all of a sudden you'd be like, you know what? I never want to get into that thing. You'll all of a sudden becomes important to you and you decide, you know what? I'm going to make sure that I never do X, Y, and Z because I see how bad it is. If you see how much you have a person that's smoking, I had a person that was doing work, you know, uh, you know, around the, you know, the house um, recently, and the non-Jewish person smokes like a chimney. My wife was was looking at this person. And she was like, "Maybe I have to just like watch because it. it looked like he was gonna go, like like I have to call Hatzala or nine one one like any minute." And this person sitting over there, barely able to breathe, and they're still smoking. And they're still doing, and be like, wait a minute, like, what's going on? You're in and out of the hospital. You can't breathe. Why are you continuing down this path? So if you see something about, like, be like, you know what? I never want to touch a cigarette in my life. Like, look at the, look at, if you start seeing that you see a drug and I'd be like, wait a minute. This is what I drug. Like, I never want, you see someone who's drunk, you'd be like, why would I ever want to be like this? Someone who's puking on himself, someone who's talking nonsense, someone who's walking, you know, in a non-straight line, why would I ever want to do that? Someone who's angry and you see that they, 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 they lose their family from it. A gambler who goes and loses their house, loses their paranasa, loses their livelihood, loses everything. You start seeing like, wait a minute, what? And you start building yourself fences because you start looking and be like, I never want to become like this. I never want to fall into this category. The Chobos Alvavas tells us, and we're going to be finishing in a few minutes, the Chobos Alvavas tells us that if a person, if, if, the, if a person sees that his generation is becoming morally loose, it's proper for him to go and act even stricter than what's the going like rate, let's just call it. Because in a storm, if you have ever walked in a hurricane, you can't just walk regular. You have to lean into the wind. Why do you have to lean into the wind? Because the wind is pushing you. And if you want to walk, you have to lean in. You have to, you can't just walk normal. It, right now, we're, we are in a spiritual storm. There are things brewing. There are things that are moving around. It's not enough to say, you know what? Okay, fine. We'll deal with the, whatever the rabbis put in. That's enough. No, no, no. We have to add our own protective fences. We have to add it because we're walking through a spiritual storm. And if you don't add your fences, you're going to be blown away. You're going to fall so far that you won't even realize, you won't even see the point of your origin. You know, like if you have an issue of tznius, you have clothes that are immodest, throw it away. Stop thinking, maybe I'll lose weight and it will become modest. When that happens, 
guarantee you, if it's just the losing of the weight, it's already immodest. It's already a problem. Because if it's just a few centimeters or whatever, it's already a problem. Throw it away. Protect yourself. Make yourself a fence. If you have a problem with Lush and Hara, learn the halacha. Start go- There's so many classes on it. There's so many books. Learn the halacha. So stay away from people. Protect yourself. Stay. Put yourself a fence. Say, say you know, this person speaks a lot of Lush and Hara. I'm staying far away. And by the way, that's a very beneficial thing. Because if someone's speaking gossip about somebody else, lesson for life. If someone's speaking gossip about somebody else, chances are they're going to be speaking gossip about you. So why would you want to be friends with somebody that speaks Lashon Hara? Because just like they're speaking bad about somebody else, when you're, you're not around, they're going to be speaking bad about you. Let's say somebody has an issue with guarding their eyes. So you put a filter you don't go to certain places. You put yourself these protective fences. And it's not only in the negative. That's like the xeras. There's also in the positive like takanas. Let's say you feel like you don't learn enough. So you set yourself a set time that every single day, no matter what, you're learning. Maybe it could be after praying, after davening. Maybe it's going to be right before you go to sleep. Maybe you have no time and you're working and you're, you're so much. So you go and you do the daily dose. It's anytime daily dose. You just do that just like two minutes a day. How could someone say you don't have two minutes a day? You download the day and you listen at least to that. And by the way, so powerful. How powerful is the daily dose? That you go and you listen to it, but you also contemplate about it. There's such a powerful message that, it, just like what we spoke about in the beginning of the year, that if you hear something, and you say, there's so many layers that you could uncover with that. <clears throat> you know, I'll finish off, even though there's a, I wouldn't even get to the, you know, producing many students. I, I will we'll figure out when we'll plug that in. Um, or maybe I'll squeeze it in now. I don't know. We'll figure it out. The Chacham Yosef brings down a Talmud Yerushalmi that brings down an interesting dialogue that they spoke to the serpent, the Nachash. And they asked the serpent, the snake, why are you commonly found in fences? And the Nachash replied, I was the first to breach the fence of the world. And the serpent over here, obviously we're talking about the evil inclination, the Yetzirah. The Gemara tries to understand why is it that the Evil inclination begins by convincing people to break minor infractions, minor sins, and that is usually the fences. Where does the evil inclination try to get you? It tries to get you in the fences. Meaning that if you created a fence, that's where it's going to try to break you down. Because this goal all boils down to the original sin. Akadish Baruch, who God told Adam Arishon, you're not allowed to eat from the Eitzadas. He went on and he added a fence and says, tells Chava, you're not allowed to even touch from, from you know, the Eitzadas. The Chava went and told the Nachash, told the snake, I'm not allowed to touch, I'm not allowed to eat it. The Nachash says, really, you're not allowed to touch it? Pushes her into it. She touches it and says, hey, you're still alive. You see, nothing happened. Must be that you could eat it as well. So his, the way that he gets you is that he slowly gets you from the minor infraction. says, what's the big deal? It's just a small sin. It's not even a sin. It's just the rabbi said it. You said it on yourself. It's really not a big deal. You know how we start rationalizing in our mind. And the evil inclination is planting these thoughts. And it's putting these rationalizations into our mind. It's not a big deal. It's just a small fence. And that's why it's interesting. The snakes are always in the fences physically. Because spiritually, that's where they originated from. They originated from the nachash, the evil inclination. Where from the fence, from going and and getting us in the small areas, and that's where they get us till till today. Start with a small sin, 
and fall in this. And once you fall in this, you'll be like, okay, what's the big deal? I'll go a little bit more. You do a little bit more. The sin, I don't want to give examples, because I can give examples from today until tomorrow. Everywhere from Shabbos to Tznias to guarding your every area in your life, you could see that sins begin small. And they slowly compound and they slowly get bigger until you, until you lose yourself. So the Torah tells us you have to, the Mishnah in Perkei says you have to, you have to put a fence in the Torah. You have to make sure that you're going and you're fencing it off and you're, and, and you're guarding yourself. Because if you don't guard yourself, you're going to fall. We are in a storm, we're in a place where, where there are so many uncertainties, there are so many temptations, there are so many things that are going on that we have to protect ourselves. The Mishnah is telling us be very, very careful. Put fence after fence to make sure that we don't fall. I really wanted to finish the Mishnah, but the last part of the Mishnah that really is is uh, making fences, but the hour is getting late. So we'll try to sneak this in in a different class. I don't know where, I don't know how, but all the time we'll be able to uh, sneak this in. But for now, I want to open up to uh, questions. First question. Okay. I think everything starts with appreciation that will cause people to be respectful to one another. I couldn't agree with you more. You know, like Hakar Satov is so huge. And by the way, people will be like, okay, let me work on something. Let me work on gratitude. Let me work on appreciation. It would work for maybe a day or two. If you want to work on something, you take your phone out. Not like later. after You take your phone out right now. And you add a reminder or a daily alarm, 2 to 2 p.m., whatever it is. I don't know, 5 p.m., 6 p.m. I'm going to work for the next five minutes on appreciation. I'm going to work in the next five minutes on guarding my eyes. I'm going to work in the next 10 minutes on Lashon Hara. If you don't put an alarm, a reminder every day, the growth is is going to be very short-lived. Okay. Uh, here's a question on Sneas. Is it Sneas to wear a denim skirt? Assuming that it's not tight and it's not long enough. Okay. Uh, this is an interesting question depending on, uh, you know, like the community and depending on the question. But generally speaking, the material is irrelevant. Again, there are certain communities that are more stricter and it's more important. And yes, if you live in that community, there are reasons for it. But from the practical halachic perspective, I'm not talking about adding fences on attack. Practical halachic perspective, the material, as long as it's not a flashy material, it's not, it's not a, you know, it's, it's not a problem as long as it covers the correct length and as long as it's not, uh, you know, tight. Okay. Hashkafically, is it okay for a post-seminary girl to work in a public school with kids? In grades kindergarten to third grade, you know that's an excellent question. No one ever asked me that. Um, generally, yes, but it's really depending on the person because we get affected from our surroundings. So, just to give you a you know example, the. Rabbi, the biggest rabbi's daughter or wife, you're not going to see them working in that environment. Why? Is it something wrong with it? Hala, you know, you have people that work in a non-Jewish office all the time. What, what's the problem here? Even though it's allowed, it's not the preferable. So while it's allowed, it's not 
the most, uh, you know, b- the best option. But at, at the end of the day, it is allowed. And it also, the reason why I said it depends on the person is that some people get more affected than, than, than others. So from the halakhic perspective, yes, it is allowed. From the hashkafic perspective, it depends on the person. Uh, okay, it doesn't always work that way. Trust me, I found out the hard way. In the past three weeks, I appreciated two people and tried to help them out, and it was taking for them a lot of money. Not everyone in the Jewish bubble is learning and growing. I don't fully understand that, um, but I agree with that aspect. Okay. Uh, Okay. Okay, last part, last question. I think that's why there is halacha not to eat food with an anjo. Oh yeah, that's, that's for, for, you know, for intermarriage. Yes, there is, you know, halacha. Again, again, these are protective. Okay, wait, hold on. We have one final question that came in. Hi Rabbi, I've been single. I've been single for six and a half years. I've spoken to some religious women I know who are also very challenged with this as well. What advice do you have to offer for us single gals in meeting our zivag again? Me personally, I'm starting to wonder what is taking so long. Okay, so there's quite a lot to uh, you know speak about that. N- number one, and I'm I'm only going to touch about a few points briefly, just because of the time. Number one, the I the tests that come with being single is hard. It's not easy. There are spiritual tests, there are emotional tests, there are physical tests that that you know that come with it. And there are certain criteria, especially speaking of offenses, that need to be taken in these areas. Uh, whether it's single that never married or whether divorced, I don't want to go into details, but I've been dealing with a lot of people on this and it's be, it's a very, very dangerous area and you have to be very careful and you have to put on many, many fences. And trust me, I'm telling you from like, I don't know, 90% of people that I, that I speak to in this area, very... So necessary to add so many fences. But an understanding that your question is why it's taking so long. There are many layers to uncover and unravel in that question. Number, I'm not even going to go into it, but I'll just rattle off a few, uh, you know, a, a few things of it. So number one, usually what I tell people uh, is usually depending on the pickiness level. Now, it might not be that issue. Uh, and it might be that people might feel I'm not being picky. And I have spoken to people that I've become very close over the years and people that, that, that I've, they've opened up to me a lot and they started off the count. I'm not picky. And then when I delved into and asked them questions, I realized and how they were so picky. They 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 claimed that they were not picky, and in their mind they were correct. They they they, really, they didn't think that they were they were being picky, but they were so picky on it. So the number one thing that I will tell you to do is you speak to somebody, you speak to a mentor, you speak to a rabbi, you speak to a rabbi, and and be like, okay, wait a minute, I'm dating this person, and there's this issue. What do you feel that I should do? Like sometimes it's a major issue. Sometimes it's not a major issue. Sometimes it's a major issue only to you. And then the, everybody is going to have to, you know, decide according to that, to that, you know, situation. But based off your own criteria, pickiness is a huge, huge aspect. There's also a spiritual aspect in it. Your zivug is supposed to be on level eight and you're a level Z. 
<laughs> you know, you're not even starting working. I can't be like, you know, you have to work on it. Like, he's never going to look at you or she's never going to look at you if you're not on that level. So it depends on where you are, you know, where you're holding in the spiritual sense. There could be other aspects in the spiritual sense. There could be certain, you know, blocks that are happening and we can't get into that. It could be from a previous life. It could be from, uh, you know, issues now. It could be work that you need to do. You might not be ready to be married. You might be someone that has uh, major anger issues or major self-esteem issues or uh, selfish. I, there's so many things that if you get married, it'll be the worst thing for you because it would end in divorce. You have to work on yourself. So the list goes on and on, and it's very hard to diagnose something, even if you know all the details, because only HaKadosh Baruch Hu knows. So what I would recommend is to go through your life and see where can I improve and where, and sometimes you may not know where you need to improve. And this is where it comes so, so important to speak to somebody because somebody else could look at it from a not, from, from a bird's eye view and they're able to go and look at it and they're able to go and say, you know, like maybe you have to focus on this angle. Maybe this is not such a big, you know, like so there's so many times where I speak to people and they think that they're so right in their stance. And I'm like, no, you're far, far off. Like, I can't tell you, like, how many people that they're single and they're older and they have such unrealistic expectations? And I told them straight, usually if there's an issue, I say it straight out. You know, fire, you know, one out of two times I would say people don't call me back because of that, but whatever it is, it is. I need, I feel like I need to say it. The idea behind it is that some people are stuck in a certain way and they have to change it. In other instances, it's not your fault. It's Minashamayim, and this is something that, you know, it's not the right time yet. So there's very hard to say what the right reason is, but definitely it would be a, an apropos per thing to speak to somebody about this and to go through your life and to go through, you know, the pickiness. These are a few things that just, you know, you could uh, go through, but really you could speak about a whole class on this. Okay. Um, comments. I'm not going to go through that, but thank you for the comments. Um, okay. Looks like that is all the questions. Thank you all for joining. Thank you all for coming. Again, anybody who wants to join us on uh, our week, uh, you know, hopefully it should be continuously weekly uh, Zoom class, please feel free to reach out to me. You can be added on to the WhatsApp chat. Um, and that is, uh, you can email me at rabbizitron at torahanytime.com and we could add you to the chat. And you could, it's open to anybody who wants to join on Thursday nights, usually from 9 to 10 uh, p.m. Thank you all for joining. And until next time, may you have an amazing, amazing, successful week, wherever you listen to this. May you have a successful life. Just bracha v'hatzlacha ad bli dai. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.